This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with James Moore. He's a Cambridge research scholar who studied and written about Charles Darwin for three decades. I spoke with him on May 24, 2006, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the BBC studios in Cambridge, England. This interview was included in our program, Evolution and Wonder, Understanding Charles Darwin. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. Hello? Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Is that James Moore? Hi. I know. Well, I found that there are some advantages to this method. You don't have to sit up straight. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I don't know if you're familiar with the program with Speaking of Faith at all. Okay. Okay. Well, let me tell you, um, you know, we'll send you a couple of CDs if you'd like. We did a a series on Einstein in the fall, which is similar to what we're going to do with Darwin. So maybe Jody can put some CDs in the mail to you. Well, this is the thing. We have this this particular program, like the Einstein program, is funded um, with a special grant through the National Endowment for the Humanities. And what we're doing is um, looking at historical figures, including some religious figures, but also figures who are not not theologians or religious thinkers, but who've had a legacy um, in terms of religious thought. And um, you know how. And so, what we will the program. It's an hour long program, as you know. This is not a live interview. And for these NEH programs, we do a very extensive website as well as the radio show. Yeah. Yes, we did a show. We did a show with John Polkinghorne, and if you look um, at the website for the Einstein program, you'll see there's extensive web material. Um, it's really a whole, um, you know, the whole is is not just uh, confined to the radio hour. Yeah. Oh, there's lots of bibliography and lots of links, and uh, we're going to do the same thing with Darwin. I will do several interviews, and we'll create um, an hour of radio. Um, and an extensive website in addition to that. So, right. Um, well, it's an it it's it's an hour long program. I, I think um, I'm also going to speak with um, a geneticist here, Lyndon Eaves. I don't know if you know him. I mean, I'm going to speak with a scientist as well. If if we'll send you the or even if you just look at the Einstein programs, you'll see that there are a couple of different voices for that show. I interviewed. Um, well, we did two shows on Einstein, but the first was with Freeman Dyson, who's a physicist, and also Paul Davies in Australia. And then uh, the script is also significant in terms of just setting up this person for um, the listener. So, I, you know, your books are, you know, really critical, and they will be listed on the website as well. So. Mm-hmm. Well, um... Uh, Yes. Well, Linda Neves, who is a, as I say, a geneticist who also is from Cambridge, trained at Cambridge, and I've and he's a he is a geneticist and also an Anglican priest, and I I have interviewed him a long time ago. He's a wonderful thinker, and so I want to kind of talk to him about as a scientist 
and a religious person, you know, how does Darwin's legacy kind of resonate in his work and inform his work? Um, uh, I'm interviewing you. We have put in a request for Jane Goodall. I don't know if that's going to come through. Um, and she's spoken um, quite a lot about how Darwin influenced her. And um, I think we're also going to interview, we're working with, tell me the name again, David Cohn, I believe, who helped create the uh, exhibit. At, and he's giving us some, he's consulting with us also on uh, the development of our website. And I think I also may end up interviewing him about Darwin's correspondence. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, actually, this interview I'm doing with you is is the first one, and so I I really want to cover some basic ground with you, um, and you know, maybe we should just launch in. And as I say, you know, there will be, all of this will find a place on this whole product, which will be a website as well as a, a radio show. And we do get to have a real conversation and uh, don't have to worry about sound bites or... <laughs> um, okay, so I think, Mitch, or can we go? Okay. I mean, let, let's just, I'd like to start just briefly by asking, you know, how you came to your particular interest in... Sure okay. Oh, can we just confirm that the recording has started on that end? One minute. Okay. Glad we asked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let's, I think we'll... Uh, yes, and I think we'll talk for about an hour. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I want us to... Because we have the luxury of the website as well as the radio, we really do get to have an in-depth conversation. And, and, um, and it will be very useful, whatever we say, talk about. I know. Well, no, it's not Garrison Keillor. Yeah, well, it is a news program, but we're creating, um, it's a kind of a new journalistic paradigm to be able to speak about... Um, religious topics and 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 any topic uh, the religious dimension of any topic um in a way that is intelligent and um open-minded and uh consonant with human experience Oh no, no! It's it's a public radio program. It's a journalistic program. It's not a religious program. We're we are a weekly national program. We're on 150 stations across the country, and we're also on in Berlin and um, NPR worldwide. Well, I think the web is international. I I don't think that should influence you too much. Who you're speaking to? We do a lot of. Right, and that's good. And uh, it is a worldwide audience. I mean, we're podcasting all over the world now. And um, I do, you know, I do, I do, I do want obviously to tap into your scholarly knowledge. But I also, I mean, one of the 
hallmarks of the program is that people, including a John Polkinghorne, speak as human beings as well. So, I, you know, where, where I actually would like to start is just, you know, some of how you came to your personal interest in Darwin. I mean, you have obviously spent many years of your life um, in scholarship about this person. So I'm curious about where your interest in that came from. Okay. Okay. Well, Sounds good from here. Okay. Um, do do you want to do you remember my last question? My question. Okay, I um I would like to hear as we begin, you know, something of your personal curiosity and how you came to be drawn to this subject of Darwin. In your scholarship. I should start at the beginning. Yeah. My accent is American, although some of it is English. I was born uh, in Chicago and brought up there and spent the first 25 years of my life in the States in education. And I've lived here ever since. It was an advantage being brought up in Chicago in evangelical fundamentalist circles because Darwin was on everyone's agenda there before even before he became uh, a major item on historians' agendas. Mm. <clears throat> so I was brought up with, with the feeling... I'm sorry, that blasted my ears. So I was brought up with the feeling that Darwin was both someone to be avoided and someone who deserved to be looked into, if only because uh, of his allegedly satanic influence on Western intellectual mm. history. Mm. And... Uh, by the time I uh, finished my science degree uh, at the University of Illinois, I had decided I wanted to study divinity, not with a view towards going into the church, but with a view towards looking at where I was in history. And one of the first people I took an interest in, a historical interest, was Darwin. My science background was in physical sciences, not biology. I began to think that Darwin was someone rather like myself because I discovered that he studied um, for, um, right, he was planning on on a, tr- a life in the church as well, wasn't he? Yes, I found that early on when I was yes. doing a divinity course that Darwin seemed to be destined for the church, the Church <laughs> of England, and I thought he must be someone rather like myself. Um, of course, I found out he wasn't much like myself at all, but it was it was a foothold mm-hmm. for my interests to develop, mm-hmm. and from there I got a scholarship to come to England, and uh, I began working on all of the controversies that swirled around Darwin's work, uh, both where his theories came from and their uh, impact uh, in Britain and the United States. Hmm. And when was that? When did you start uh, becoming a a student, a scholar of this this man? I first wrote an essay about Darwin. In 1969. That's a long time ago. It sure is a long time ago. I don't feel that old. Okay. (laughs) And uh, it was published in the 1970s. Mm. Um, And by that time, I was working on my PhD thesis, which became a book called The Post-Darwinian Controversies. Right. 
And uh, from there, I became more and more interested in Darwin himself and the development of his theories. Okay. So um, I both look intensively and um, extensively uh, at what some people call the Darwinian revolution. Mm-hmm. I have that book. That I didn't realize that that was the book that was your your thesis. Um, so I think you are as good a person as any to to paint a picture for me and for our listeners of the the world in which Darwin um, grew up and why his ideas were so difficult for him, you know, even to articulate at that time. Um, talk about some of the assumptions of that world that his science, you know, came up against. Darwin was born into Jane Austen's world. If you know Jane Austen's world, the manners, uh, the politeness, the class structure, um, the apparent invisibility of science, then you know the world Darwin was brought up in. It's the early 19th century. Uh, His father was a wealthy, respectable physician. His grandfather was the same. They were both sympathizers with the French and American revolutions. They were anti-slavery. They were pro-France, which was not a popular thing to do in England. They were liberals, Hmm. liberal to radicals in their politics. And on his mother's side, Darwin was Unitarian, but very warm-hearted and evangelical Unitarian. Uh, And so he went to chapel growing up. Uh, He was baptized in the Church of England, which was a safe precaution. And um, these two sides of his family, his paternal radicalism and his maternal devoutness, um, helped fuel a growing contradiction in his own life. Um, He had to have a career... His father had picked him out for medicine, very respectable occupation, but he didn't succeed, uh, and he disappointed his father. So the second best was the Church of England. Mm-hmm. It was a safe home for ne'er-do-well sons. And uh, I mean, we should also point out, and this is this has been true almost into the present in England, that that joining the church historically was a very respectable profession for, as you say, sons of upper-class families. Exactly. Yeah. Darwin didn't have to believe every yacht and tittle of the 39 Articles of the Church of England. He had to be able to say that he believed these things. Um, it was a casual business. Um, you would get set up with a country parish. You would have a guaranteed income. You'd have a guaranteed society with squires and uh, the upper gentry um, and do your church duties and you'd have a great deal of time left over for natural history, collecting beans and uh, looking down microscopes and things like that. And this quite appealed to Darwin. Mm -hmm. And that's what he would have been. He would have taken his place in the countryside of Jane Austen's England as a vicar of a parish, uh, celebrating Holy Communion on Sundays, burying people in the churchyard, calling in people's homes. And yet, of course, that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Now... I believe that you have written that evolution was something of a, you know, asserting evolution was something of a social crime in Victorian Britain. And Darwin himself once said that when he came out with his theory, it was like committing a murder. And I wonder, I want you to explain what it was that he felt he was murdering, what it, what made it a social crime. Darwin, when he confessed to a friend, a trusted friend, that he believed that species, living species came into existence naturally, he said, 
in brackets, it's like confessing a murder. Mm -hmm. That was in 1844. We have to look at the mood at that time. And in all of the years Darwin was being educated, God was in his heaven. All was right with the world, at least in England. People knew their places. Things were changing. But it was widely believed that both society and the natural world were held stable, fixed mm -hmm. by God's will. And this world was justly and correctly administered by God's agents on earth, his priests. And in England, that would be the Church of England. Um, species did not change spontaneously and naturally because nothing in this world happened purely naturally and spontaneously. God was in charge. When Darwin confessed to murder, he was saying that nature is self-developing. God, according to Darwin, had established laws by which matter moves itself and changes into new forms we call species. Darwin was not denying God's existence. The murder was not the murder of God. The murder was, well, a murder was a capital crime in Great Britain. It was something for which one necessarily suffered by law. Mm -hmm. And one suffered as a transmutationist. That's what an evolutionist was called in those days because many people believed, including most of the people Darwin respected most, clergymen of the Church of England, believed that to embrace transmutation was implicitly to side with those who denied God, particularly in France, where it was a common belief amongst intellectuals. I see. So they were also, there was a defensiveness against that. And a transmutation is the word that was used originally rather than evolution, right? Yes, it mm -hmm. had been used for a couple of hundred years. Mm -hmm. Evolution was used, but it was used of different things, like the development of a, of a curve in mathematics. Now, I think that at that time in Victorian Britain, the whole field of biology was captive to creationist theology, but I don't think it had always been that way. I, I, is that right? Was, I mean, was that particularly true in that era? We have to use the word creationist and creationism very carefully. Mm -hmm. Historically, Christians and Jews and Muslims are all creationists because they believe that God brought the world into existence in the Christian tradition, it's from nothing, ex nihilo, in theology. Right. God is the source of all being. And, and another term for creationist, uh, another meaning for creationists, were those people who believed that, that God also brought each individual soul, human soul, into existence uh, by his power alone, out of no pre-existing matter. So a creationist was not a person historically who had any particular views on the origin of biological species, but as one who had held certain theological views about the universe and about the soul. The definition of creationist became narrowed in the 17th century and in the 18th century uh, in reaction to, partly in reaction to political events. Um, it was... Um, partly in reaction to these political events. At this time, people were discovering a great deal more about the natural world and were classifying individual species and grouping these species in larger groups and larger groups. And it became a, a matter of belief during the 17th and 18th century that 
each of these species, each of these biological species of plants and animals, hundreds, tens of hundreds, of thousands of species, have been individually created by God in their first pair in the Garden of Eden. And okay. the poetry of John Milton in Paradise Lost gave a great deal of um, color to that. You know, the passage where the hmm. lion is struggling to get his hinder quarters out of the clod. and There's a literalism in this poetry that Christians took to be part of the explanation of the origin of biological species. So by the time Darwin is born in 1809, it is a common assumption in all churches and by all Christians that the original pair of every species, or at least the major groups of species, had been brought into existence not so long ago by God. This was a modern belief. It didn't it was not a common belief before the 17th century. You know, I think that's really interesting. What you're describing is as people began to learn, as science kind of opened up and people began to learn more about the natural world, there was an attempt to fit that knowledge into the biblical stories. But the result of that was to, to make those more rigid um, than, in fact, they they were. I mean, I think previously also even theologians read Genesis not as a scientific text. I mean, didn't try to make it a scientific text, read it as a theological text with a theological purpose. Ordinary people read the Bible with their ordinary spectacles on, and uh, there wasn't a great deal of sophistication to uh, their interpretations. The people who told them what the Bible says were very, very important. In the Protestant Reformation, those people were not to be the church dictating how you read the Bible, but Mm -hmm. the individual believer and his pastor or her pastor. So the Bible became an open book much more than it had been when it was translated into the the vulgar language, the ordinary language of people. And, you know... I believe the Catholic Church was right to this extent, that this really did open up a Pandora's box of possibilities because with every person becoming his or her own interpreter, there was scope for really quite extraordinary clashes about what God is telling us through this book. Right. And as far as the creation story is concerned, of course, we don't know what God has created without looking around us in the world. So with voyages of discovery, with uh, intense national investigations, we began to build up a picture. People began to build up a picture of the extraordinary diversity of life on Earth. And that had to be fitted into the ordinary person's view of the Bible. Which had really historically been newly made available to them. I mean, really, not so many years had passed if you look at history. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So people who interpreted the meaning of books became very important. Typically, these were classical authors, but the book that everyone cared about, the interpretations they cared about, were, were the Bible. Yeah. And people who interpreted the natural world, who investigated different species of plants and animals, uh, people who interpreted the meaning of rocks rather than books became very important by the beginning of the 19th century when Darwin was growing up. Mm. And there was a real clash between the interpreters of books and the interpreters of rocks as to who would have the upper hand. And ordinary people's allegiance began to shift 
by the middle of the 19th century, around 1850, 1860, in favor of the interpreters of rocks and plants and animals. And these people were first called scientists in the 1870s. That wasn't a word anyone used, only one or two people used in Darwin's uh, boyhood. But now scientists, the interpreters of plants and animals and rocks, became culturally important. And the interpreters of books took second place. But of course, it was always essential to look around us in the world to find out the things that God had created. People had always been comparing what they saw and felt with what was in the text of the Bible. And and possibly intuitively reconciling them. (laughs) Well, well, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, But um, remember also that in the 19th century, and I I can speak only of the Western world, um, until the 1840s, I suppose, less than half, probably less than a third of people could read. Mm-hmm. So culture was transmitted orally and materially. Um, rather, uh, uh, culture was transmitted orally rather than by writing for the great masses of people. What they heard from pulpits rather than what they read in pa- papers. Right. Uh, and yes, the Bible was available to people. It was a great incentive to learn how to read, so you could read the Bible for yourself. Right. I think, um, so you said that it was only in the 1870s that the word, that, that, that scientists were named, and that's after the publication of The Origin of Species. And I, I think it also helps explain everything you're just, the history you've just told helps explain a sentence I wanted to ask you about from you that, the Origin of Species was the last great work in the history of science in which theology was an active ingredient. This is something that, you know, we have no historical memory of in our present culture, but it's very clear when you start reading this book that Darwin is, that there's this painstaking care that he makes with every observation of the natural world. It's almost like he's anticipating the, the theology that he is challenging or trying to open up and he so he's kind of at this moment where you say as the two as as religion and science were joined and then there starts to be a divide he he's right there before that divide actually kind of takes place is i mean is that right darwin's understanding of nature never departed from a theological point of view he began a christian rather easygoing christian he ended up giving up christianity but he always, I believe, until his dying day, at least half of him believed in God. Sometimes the feeling would go pass from him, and, and other times uh, it was strong. Um, he said he deserved to be called an agnostic. But he did make the point later in life that when I wrote The Origin of Species, my faith in God was as strong as that of a, a bishop. Hmm. So Darwin's many references to creation, there are over 100 references to creation and its cognate words in The Origin of Species. His references to creation and to the creator are to be read as sincere and not as sops to his critics, the kind of camouflage to insinuate his views. Yeah, you really, I mean, when you really read the text, you you are aware of the struggle. He is wanting to be respectful. I mean, he he takes very seriously the the religious and cultural 
assumptions that he, he realizes he's disturbing. Darwin is, in, in The Origin of Species, uh, this is what I tell my students, it, it, if, if you are a creationist or you're inclined to be sympathetic with what we now today call creationism, right. read The Origin of Species. <laughs> right. The Origin of Species is, as Darwin called it, one long argument. One long argument against conventional notion that God miraculously created the first individuals of the basic forms of life. Darwin wants to show, wants to convince you in this book that God has established laws of nature on earth as in the heavens, and these laws produce the forms of life that we observe. And the, the principal cause of this for Darwin is natural, what he calls natural selection. So that it can be true, as the Bible begins, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and also everything that that science was learning about the natural world could also could be true at the same time, right? That's the implication of that. Well, Darwin doesn't imply that the Bible has any authority in this matter at mm-hmm. all. He, personally, he didn't believe it had any authority. It might be edifying to some people, such as his wife, and remember, his wife was a sincere, devout believer. Um, mm-hmm. She began as a girl uh, with the Unitarians, um, but she attended her local parish church, her local Anglican church, um, uh, right until the end of her life. And Darwin wasn't about to say anything in The Origin of Species um, disingenuous or disrespectful because his life was the, his wife was the most prescient, most, because his life, we can edit this, Be, don't worry. Yeah, sure. He, he, he wasn't <laughs> going to say right anything once, disingenuous yeah. or, mm-hmm. or, or um, disrespectful about belief in creation or God um, or the Bible in The Origin of Species because his wife was the most precious person to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not to say he trimmed his sails to please her, not at all. Um, it's hard when you look very closely in some of the passages to know whether Darwin could have believed what he was saying. But in 90% of the passages, which are theological in The Origin of Species, and there are many, I believe Darwin is to be taken <laughs> literally. Okay. Let's talk about the, um, at the beginning of The Origin of Species. He has a quote from Francis Bacon. And I, I want to read it, and I'd like for you to explain... Um, what this was describing in terms of um, a way of looking at the world and why Darwin might have put it at the beginning of The Origin of Species. Um, Bacon wrote, To conclude, therefore, let no man out of a weak conceit of sobriety or an ill-applied moderation think or maintain that a man can search too far or be too well studied in the book of God's word or in the book of God's works, divinity or philosophy, but rather let men endeavor an endless progress or proficience in both. This is Francis Bacon, um, the philosopher, the statesman, writing in the 17th century. This was before science and religion came apart in the way that we usually think about today and associate with Darwin's name. The two books for Francis Bacon are the Word of God and the works of God, the Bible 
and the works of God in nature. The works of God is everything we see around us, right? The world. The, the natural world. The natural world. And Bacon believes sincerely that one could not be too well studied in either area. That is, in the area of theology, divinity, he says, that that takes as its source the Bible, or in natural history, the, the works of God in creation. Um, Bacon, in other passages, which Darwin would know about, says that it's very important not to confuse these two books. Uh, for Bacon, it's important that the works of God teach us how to interpret the Word of God. I see. So what we see in nature... Rather than the other nature, way around, isn't it? Because that, that's the way it's kind of... I think if there is... Um an attempt in our time to look at this, it's the other way around, to it's, it's interpret reversed. the works of God through the Word of God. It's, okay. There's been a reversal, and uh, it's always been, a, a, I'm afraid, a minority, even a fringe tendency in the last two or three hundred years to say that God's Word tells us how to interpret God's works. Right. And people have gone off on some extraordinary tangents in so doing, for example, yeah. opposing Newtonian astronomy on the grounds that the book of Genesis rules it out. Okay. Um, this was long before people tried to get geology out of Genesis. So right at the front of The Origin of Species, Darwin has a quotation from the, the revered Lord Bacon to show that the Bible and natural history should be studied together. Okay. Um. I think that that is worth dwelling on for just a moment, that that up to then, I mean, that even, now, as you say, with Darwin, we associate Darwin's name with the split. But until then, um, even some of the scientists that we think of as having been opposed to the church, I mean, Newton, Galileo, they they also were in that tradition of seeing their work understanding the the world, the created world, as they, they might have described it, as illuminating what was, what religion, the r- religious beliefs and or Christian tenets and the Bible. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh, look at Newton, for example. He was absolutely obsessed with the meaning of Bible prophecy. And we don't interpret the Bible, uh, at least most of us don't uh, today, uh, the way he did. But he was doing numerical calculations. He was he was ferociously anti-Catholic, and he was trying to prove certain assumptions that he made about history uh, through looking at the numerical value of various things in the text of Scripture. That's how important the Bible was to, to the great Sir Isaac Newton. Um, it's very important to realize that in return for telling us how texts uh, of the Bible should be interpreted, people who investigated nature, call them naturalists, were also expected to supply evidences of God's beneficence, power, and wisdom uh, in the works of nature. So the, the marvelous way in which uh, a bivalve shell is constructed, or the wonderful joint in your elbow, <laughs> or the, the patterns of, 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 of life, the beauty of butterflies. Mm. All of these things can be studied by naturalists and said to be evidence of God's, the Creator's wisdom and beneficence. Mm. And this was the pattern up until Darwin's day, that those people who said, here's how you interpret the Bible because this is what we found in nature. We'll also say, and by the way, what we found in nature is tremendous 
proof of God's mm-hmm. existence. And, and creativity. They, <laughs> and, and, and creativity, not mm-hmm. only what he created, but of the, he was great wisdom and bounty in so doing. Mm-hmm. But that started coming unraveled in Darwin's day. Right, but One Darwin, half of the book. And Darwin really is in that line. I mean, even though he, that, that was his inheritance in a sense. Darwin's starting point were these wonderful, um, the, the term was adaptation, the wonderful adaptations of organisms to their environment. Things seem to be made perfectly to live where they are, fish to swim, ducks to paddle, and so forth. These traditionally were evidences of the creator's wisdom and goodness. Darwin doesn't deny that to begin with, but Mm -hmm. he says we can explain how nature produced these adaptations to environment. We can explain how the beauty of a butterfly uh, is useful to that butterfly in pursuing its way of life. I can come up with causes for this, and it's up to you to believe that God created these things through these causes or not. and he wasn't, according to many of his critics, upholding his half of the bargain that those who studied God's works were going to f- furnish evidence of God's existence and goodness. He sort of let that go, and so did lots of other people. Right. And then there was always a contingent who said, look, you can't get God out of nature. There are too many problems. There's too much pain. There's too much suffering. The right. only way you can really know God is through studying his revelation in the Bible. And uh, so there were Christians who opposed this emphasis on God's wisdom and beneficence in nature. It's called natural theology. Lots of Christians opposed that and relied upon the Bible itself. Darwin evokes the works of God, the works of natural theology, the greatness of nature, Mm -hmm. at the beginning of The Origin of Species because he really does believe those works in nature are beautiful and astonishing and the adaptations are there. He's at one with the spirit of natural theology, just read his prose in The Origin of Species. It exudes wonder at nature, but he can explain how it happened. I wonder if you would tell some of the stories that you've told in uh, in your writing that I've read, um, just some of the kind of turning points for Darwin moments, I think during the voyage of the Beagle, um, you talk about him standing. I'm going to cue you about what I've written down, or maybe there are others you'd like to mention. But the ones I, you know, that in Brazil, his his sense of, um, he wrote, there, no one can stand unmoved in these solitude, solitudes without feeling that there is more in man than the mere breath of his body. But you talk about other experiences he had, meeting Aboriginal peoples. Talk about some of those, you know, paint some of those pictures in terms of how, what he experienced and how all of these things we've been talking about started to come together and there was also um, kind of discordance also in his thinking and how that how that formed in him. Darwin <clears throat> Darwin sailed on HMS Beagle in 1831 a fairly conventional product of Cambridge University. He was scientifically well informed but he held conventional views about God and about nature, about natural theology even about the Bible. Um, Pretty easygoing, but conventional. He had been brought up in one corner of one culture in Western Europe. He had never seen a person without clothes on, never seen a woman without clothes on. (laughs) And suddenly he's thrust into a situation where immediately on landing in Brazil, he sees slaves being traded. 
He sees people in chains and in servitude to other people. His whole family hated slavery, but now he confronted it. And it was about this time that he wandered off into the, the forest for the first time and sat down on a mossy log and made notes in his field notebook. And he actually uses the word from the Bible. He says, Hosanna. He sees the palms around him, as on Palm Sunday. Hmm. Uh, he has an experience that stayed with him for many, many, many years. Uh, later, only a year or so, he reached the southern tip of South America, Tierra del Fuego, and here he sees what he calls real naked savages for the first time. He, he sees a full-term pregnant woman with the rain and sleet dripping from her body. He sees... He hears, really, he hears what he describes as animal-like sounds coming from these people. He has no concept that any language could be expressed in that way. And, of course, he said, where do these people come? He makes the note to himself, where do these people come from? How can he, who sips sherry with the great professors in Cambridge, be the product of the same God in the same world that creates these people hmm. so primitive and it planted a thought in his mind that never went away. How can you account for the diversity of human races? And then, you know, finally, the, the, the other great experience was ex passing through an earthquake in Chile. Uh, he was just sitting on the forest floor one day, and the whole earth moved beneath him. And this was not only terrifying, but it made him feel the fragility of human life, that here he was, a young man caught in immensities, which he believed to be ruled by God through natural laws. And then he reached Concepcion in Chile, and he saw that the whole cathedral had been leveled. Yeah. This great house of God had been knocked down by the same forces that elevated the Andes and changed whole geological environments. At the end of his life, he was asked what stuck in his mind about his experiences uh, in South America and on the Beagle. And he remembered climbing to the peak of the Andes um, in Peru or Chile, I can't remember, um, and then turning as he reached the peak and looking behind him. And he said it was like the Hallelujah Chorus in the Messiah playing with full orchestra, <laughs> blaring in his head, hmm. um, because he was on top of the world. He was looking down almost like God upon this creation, which he had been begun to sort out in his own mind as, as he'd been climbing, as it were. But at the end of his life, he was asked, what's the most extraordinary experience you had? And he said, remembered climbing to the peak of the Andes. And then he slept on it. And the next day, he came back to the person he'd said that to, and he said, no, it was the rainforest. It was sitting there and feeling that there must be more to man than the breath of his body. Hmm. Hmm. But that doesn't mean that he believed in the human soul. At that time, he did. But no. like, that was a romantic feeling. That yeah. sense of human unity with nature did not depend for Darwin in later life on the separate existence of an immortal soul. Okay. But, but there is a sense of, kind of transcendence even in the concrete world, that, or an intuition of that, whether you call it a soul or not. It is that transcendence mm -hmm. um, that... that in America, people like Rolf Waldo Emerson emphasized the transcendentalists. Mm -hmm. uh, German philosophers uh, emphasized it. Darwin picked up on some of the Germans 
uh, Alexander right. von Humboldt was very important to him um, from, for his descriptions of the, the pr profusion of life in the tropics. Yeah. Darwin longed to go to the tropics to experience what he experienced in that rainforest moment. Well, um, I wonder, so he, now, I mean, that, we, we touched on this briefly, but let's come back to this. I mean, the, if God fixed the world as it is, um, that also meant, I suppose, an implication of that would be fixing inequity and suffering. Darwin saw a level of, I don't know, let's say poverty and also injustice that he maybe. Maybe maybe it's not that it didn't exist in Victorian Britain, but he didn't see it. Um, and also, I think it's worth noting, and we haven't talked about this, that 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 he was a contemporary of Karl Marx. That um, even though that that societal order, which may have felt preordained, so right, was was being called into question even in Britain. Um, you co-authored a book with another author, with um, someone else, called, which was called Darwin, a tormented evolutionist. And there was a sentence in that that really struck me. And let me find it. I've just been listening to you and not looking at my notes. Um, uh, that if you appreciate Darwin's attitude to the workhouse culture, his science acquires a deeper political meaning. So talk to me about how his observations of um, also, what went wrong in human society and in the natural world? How did that all flow into his reactions to the religion of his time and what he was learning in science and how he made sense of all that? England was undergoing a population explosion. In Darwin's lifetime, he came back from the... I'm sorry, this, this, the level goes up and down. Now it's gone way down in my earphones before it was up high. Hmm. I don't know exactly why that happens. Could I just, I'll just, sorry, you did um, mention if we need to do a tape change or something, a backup tape change, you could just pause. Can I just ask you, just something I just need to discuss technically, and could both of you just hold in your heads what that thought was, or if you, if you, if it's not appropriate. Oh, I need to start over. Okay. Um, I, I'm guess we're experiencing a lot more pumping on the um, uh, telephone line. Oh, than okay. Anticipated. All right. Um, a possible solution to that is that we simply use the um, ISDN G seven two two as as um, a, a feedback as a, a talkback instead. But that would that would take what uh, three minutes pause. And I'm just I don't want to disturb the flow. It's a terrific interview. Yeah. Um, but I'm just uh, the, uh, uh, Jim here is doing a fantastic job. Yeah. In, in um, uh, coming across with his hearing, uh, quite a pumping. Okay, uh, not Mitch. Just on your questions, but right? On so phones. it's it's not a problem in the recording; it's a problem in just in the in hearing this well, line. Yeah, just now, there was quite a fluctuation, yeah. which yeah. threw me off. I, I was trying to. I, I was just trying something there, just if I could ride the headphone level right. a little bit. But I'm not. I need to check. With, okay, uh, Mitch is Mitch is hearing this, and I think he's going to come on the line now. Okay, uh, if you can. I mean, if it's not a problem to just not ride the level, if, if that's uh, uh, the problem was that would work is, for us. Um, in terms of the recording here, the quality is fine. That's not a problem. It's a, it's a problem in our headphones. Um, mm -hmm. The telephone balance units here are pumping a lot. Uh, we're just listening pre here to your um, telephone signal. And um, that is giving a lot of coloration on the headphones, not just to your questions, but also to what while um, uh, Jim's giving the answers. Um, 
and it's also um, preventing me from doing a proper um, sort of quality monitoring. Um, although I'm, you know, I'm happy with the, um, the we've done the tests on the on the quality. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to take a couple of minutes just to dial, or even we don't have to pause. I could quickly give Mitch a, a, a number, the ISDN number. Well, we can certainly try that. Let me. I mean, uh, it can be in parallel. It doesn't have to. We don't have to lose this line. And okay, uh, it's just. I mean, I pre-hear something else. The phone number is um, the usual codes that you've given, um, and then the um, so it'd be four four one two two three three five eight five one two. Okay, and perhaps we can just continue with the uh, interview until we get a connection. Yeah, sure. That's okay. that's not a problem. It, it, it wouldn't um, uh, switching from the two shouldn't um, give one. If I can just just talk to the, to Jim now. If if there's a problem with the head, your headphone level, just point at your headphones and sort of point up or down. If you'd like me to turn mm -hmm. the level mm -hmm. up or down, and uh, otherwise we'll uh, I'll just let you continue and I'll fade myself out. Mm -hmm. Do you remember where we were? Um, just run that quick quotation well, past me Well, I, I think I'll... I asked you an impossibly big question and maybe too big, but I, I wanted to get into uh, this idea of um, of how he saw um, he saw the world as <laughs> less. You know, when we began, you described the 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 life of his life in England as you know as part of a very ordered society, which was quite placid on the surface and a sense that God was behind that. Now, I think one of the things that he saw in Brazil was um, even a human order that spoke less unequivocally of a, of a benevolent creator, less of an order that made sense. And then also in England at this time, he was a contemporary of Marx. There's a lot going on. And, and in one of the books that you co-authored, there's, you know, there's a statement that if you, if you understand... Um, Darwin's attitude to the workhouse, you, you can better understand his science. And I just want you to talk to me about how all these social dynamics and observations that he's making play into his science. How do they help explain him? Darwin came back from the Beagle Voyage very keen to make an impact on the scientific communities of his day. Um, he had tons of specimens, literally tons of rocks and birds and fishes and insects um, and he decided to settle in London where he could best administer his collections um, and get them into the hands of people who would describe them and write them up. Um, London was in turmoil when Darwin reached the metropolis. Um, what year are we talking here? We're talking about uh, Darwin finally uh, arrives in London in March 1837. Okay. Um, George the uh, Fourth is, is soon to die. Um, Queen Victoria is soon to um, accede to the throne. Um, there have been crop failures. People have been flocking to the cities, trying to uh, scrounge a living. Uh, there was terrible overcrowding. You could see this on every street corner. Uh, there was no threat of revolution. Change was coming slowly, but for some people it wasn't coming fast enough. Um, Darwin did not feel personally under threat from the society he mingled with. He was with gentlemen, after all, urban intellectuals. He was well-to-do. His brother he lived with uh, was independently wealthy. But there were plenty of radicals uh, in medical circles and uh, amongst working-class uh, intellectuals who were prepared to see Britain go the way of France 
Right. I'm getting a revolution. Getting, Are you sounding better now? That, yeah, but I was getting an yeah, echo on it. Said, you, yes, it's impossible to talk with an echo. You're now, you're now getting, we're getting much better quality now on the ICTN. Is that right? Yeah, Krista sounds like she's right here. Okay. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, that's great. Um, are you getting an echo? I'm. No, no, I'm no echo now. All right. Okay. Good. Well, <laughs> we've just come a little closer. <laughs> All right. So, so, yeah. so there were plenty of people out there prepared to see Britain go the way of France. France, which is revolution, the 1790s. Mm-hmm. France, 1830. Mm-hmm. Um, not Darwin's friends. Darwin's friends paid taxes to support the poor. Welfare. Okay. And welfare handouts were growing year by year as more and more people fell on hard times and flocked to the cities. What to do with the excess number of people? If you gave them food, so the theory went at that time, this was a very middle-class theory, they would simply produce more babies. Pauper boys and girls could eat well enough to reproduce, and, and you would have um, totally irresponsible society, and the burden on middle-class taxpayers becomes greater and greater as the years go by. The answer uh, being given at this time was that life should be made so difficult for the recipients of welfare handouts that they don't reproduce. In other words, they go into places called workhouses. There were workhouses in the United States, most countries. These are places where the sexes are kept separate mm. and any any sustenance they get, they have to work for, you know, breaking stones or whatever. So workhouses were being built all over the country and poor people were opposing them. There were riots in 1839. Um, the troops were sent in later on. Um, in 1842, Britain came closer to revolution than any other year of the 19th century. And the years from 1837 to 1842 were the years of Darwin's most radical thinking about humanity's place in nature. These were the years in which he kept clandestine notebooks, speculating how all of the phenomena he saw around him in society as well as in natural history could be explained by God's laws. And the central law is the law of the struggle for existence. And Darwin gets this out of Whig poor law ideology. Right. And Reverend Thomas Malthus in particular. Malthus and, you know, let's, Malthus had uh, theorized very influentially that population, well, you, you talk about what uh, was controlled. Um, just describe Malthus. Malthus. Malthus's theories that were so influential. Well, Reverend Thomas Malthus, an Anglican clergyman. I'd um, forgotten that he was an Anglican clergyman. Yes, he's an Anglican <laughs> clergyman. Uh, you might have thought that he was comfortable in a, a, an old, uh, immobile, petrified, aristocratic society. But already, already in the 1790s, partly as a reaction to the revolution in France, Malthus had to ask whether... I'm, I'm sorry... Already as a reaction to the revolution in France, Malthus had to answer what the possibilities were for social improvement. And in in reaction to the excessive optimism of the day, he hit on what he believed to be a law of nature, that humans reproduce at roughly 25-year doubling of population. Humans double their population every 25 years on average. But in the same period of time, they can only increase their food supply incrementally, arithmetically. So population goes up as 1, 2, 4, 8, and food supply goes up as 1, 2, 3, 4. So there's an Mm -hmm. increasing gap between mouths to feed and the food available. 
And this leads, of course, to a great struggle for the food that's available. And this struggle is inescapable unless people stop having sex, to put it bluntly. <laughs> Moral restraint, he called it. That's mm. your only hope. Gosh. If you try to cut back population growth by any other means, it is either vice, for example, abortion, or misery, war, destruction, killing. So obviously humans are not going to restrain themselves. And Darwin witnessed a population explosion going mm. around him. About Darwin witnessed... Obviously, people weren't going to restrain themselves, and Darwin witnessed a population explosion going round about him mm -hmm. when he was theorizing about evolution, a struggle for existence, and the fittest were surviving. So Malthus um, uh, sort of described how <clears throat> population growth would always be too much, and it would be checked by famine and war. <clears throat> um, I guess he was, but he was also saying that that these things were a manifestation of God's wrath. I, and you've just explained to me because, in fact, it was sexual vice that was behind this population growth, right? But so, I mean, in that sense, um, Darwin... For, for Mal uh -huh, go on. For Malthus, the gap between population growth and increase of food supply is God-ordained. Hmm. God has ordained this tremendous fecundity amongst human beings in order to get us to till the land, to give us the incentive to feed ourselves. We're always going to have to struggle to do that. And also the incentive to restrain ourselves sexually. This is a law of nature, and it's for our own good. Lots of Christians believe that. Malthus mm -hmm. believed that. And even people who weren't particularly Christian, free-thinking, radical, intellectuals, Darwin's friends in London, believed that too. They didn't necessarily believe God ordained it, but they believed that was a law of nature. That's just how you had to... to you, that is just what you had to reckon with in life. Mm -hmm. Darwin seizes on this gap between population growth and food supply and thinks to himself, my Lord... If it's bad for people, think how bad it is for animals and plants mm. because they cannot exercise moral restraint. They just <laughs> constantly reproduce. And so he says it's a, it's, it's a much, much worse struggle out there for everything else in the world. And why, what good can come of that for them? What good can come for them is progress. The struggle produces adaptations to environments, all the things that natural theology and um, Christian preachers had talked about as glorifying God's wisdom and beneficence. Darwin said, these things are produced by a bloody, agonized, protracted struggle out there. And in the end, of course, you get adaptation to environment. Things swim and fly and, and support themselves, but scratch the surface, and it's, it's, it's a bloody warfare. See, what's, what's intriguing to me here is that... Um, this religious idea that Darwin toppled, that everything that was had been ordained by God, fixed, that not only that there were all the forms in nature, but, but I think the social order of society, um, including, as somebody like Malthus would come in, even the social order which was destructive, which, in which people died. Um, so there's a sense, we only talk about how, how Darwin... You know, the talk, the religious talk about Darwin's legacy is of how he challenged perhaps the sovereignty of God or an idea of the sovereignty of God. But he also liberated God from being responsible for inequity and suffering, in a sense. Do you know what I'm saying? 
Darwin didn't believe that God was himself directly responsible for each slug and snail, each catastrophe, each premature death, uh, each, as Darwin once said, uh, each gnat snapped up by each swallow. God didn't ordain these things. Um, these things were the consequences of patterns, laws, ways of going about uh, existence that God had established uh, at the uh, at the outset uh, of creation, about which Darwin didn't have anything to say, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in a way, you could say he gets God off the hook. Um, <laughs> because uh, on the one hand, you could admire all the tremendous adaptations and the progress in the natural world and ascribe this to laws described by God. Lords, ascribe this to laws prescribed by God. On the other hand, you can say that... Um, you have to you you have to balance out that good with the with the pain that we experience. Darwin doesn't offer any form of compensation. He doesn't say um, there's going to be a heaven for dogs or mm-hmm. for horses or mm-hmm. for people. Um, he does suggest that in future our descendants will look back upon us in the way that we look back upon the apes. They will be that much more advanced than the rest of us. And um, that was just a piece of Victorian optimism. I, you know, <laughs> I wish I could say that. I thought that were being proved in our time. Yeah, but. but It was even worse than that, though. Mm-hmm. For, all, for all his, his uh, opposition to slavery and his belief in human... In, in, for all his opposition to slavery and his belief in human equality, that we're all one family, mm-hmm. all the races, Darwin did believe in racial competition so that he saw in, in, in time the more advanced, more civilized races defeating the less civilized. I see. There was a correlation between color and degree of civilization. So that in the long run, uh, you know, the, the world will be populated by the most advanced races and the other ones will go extinct. And so will the baboons and the orangutans mm-hmm. and the chimpanzees. Darwin thought this would be a sign of progress. And again, it just shows what a man of his own time he was. Yes, because really the... the uh the, the present and future seem more multifaceted, multicolored, multicultural than than even fifty years ago. I think people could. There imagine. was there was a moment, um, in, a very poignant moment in the eighteen sixties, when um, a friend of his um, lost a relative and wrote to him rather distraught about the meaning of human existence and the meaning of death in this universe and uh, how awful it is to lose a relative and. Darwin wrote back, and he said, hey, that's nothing compared to the death of millions of species throughout recorded history mm-hmm. in, in, the, in, the, in the collapse of the solar system. And then he inserts in the letter the little words, sick transit gloria mundi with a vengeance, and so passes the world with a vengeance. Huh. There was something deep inside Darwin that, that I think... He, he he wanted to bring people face to face with the appalling depths of nature, that it it it's it produces morality in nature, but it it's not a moral place. There's mm. no comfort in nature. Mm-hmm. He grits his teeth and he makes us look at it in the origin of species. For all the God and the glorification of God's creation you find in the origin, there is also this this bloody minded uh, insistence. That there are, that there are no simple solutions. Hmm. Oh, there's something that um, jumps out at me, and I, I don't see any um, 
commentary on it in anything I've read, which I certainly have not exhausted the literature on Darwin, either yours or anyone else's. But the analogy he makes, the words he uses, he 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 drew pictures as he as he formulated his idea of natural selection, and it was of a tree. Um, you know, here's a passage from on natural selection: as buds give rise by growth to fresh buds, and these, if vigorous, branch out and overtop on all sides many a feebler branch. So, by generation, I believe it has been with the great tree of life, which fills with its dead and broken branches the crust of the earth and covers the surface with its ever-branching and beautiful ramifications. Now, what intrigues me in there is that he uses that phrase, the tree of life, which harkens back to Genesis for me, um, the, the the tree in the center of the garden. I mean, was Absolutely. was that a ref- was that in his mind and his imagination? I have little doubt that it was in his mind. It's um, fascinating. He uh, was was not devoted to the scriptures, but he lived in a culture that was saturated with the phrases of the, of the King James, the sixteen eleven version yeah. uh, of the Bible. And um, th- this tree for Darwin is 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 a genealogical tree. It is uh, the common ancestry of us all at one point he says in his notes we are all netted together hmm. that that it's 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 more humble and i believe true he says in another note when he's a young man to see us as created from animals and that tree is the tree of how we relate to everything else that is alive and for darwin that isn't to reduce human beings but it's to raise everything that grew on that tree even the branches that fall off, the twigs that that are lost, these are the things that go that extinct. wither because they go extinct, yes. They fall into the earth, and they form the soil in which others grow. Mm. It's a wonderful vision of the, of, of the richness of organic nature and the unity of life. Mm-hmm. And of human one, um, participation and, and belonging to that. To that larger picture, Darwin has a vision of nature, and it's it takes a, quite a while studying Darwin from when he was in his twenties, really, until at the end of his life, he's working on earthworms of all things. <laughs> to, to, to 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 one has to look at his overall work uh, very hard to to begin to appreciate the greatness of this man. Um, I don't necessarily like him better for having studied Darwin all these years, mm-hmm. but I do have the the most profound respect for the way he doggedly pursued his vision of the history of life on Earth and how great things are caused by little things. Mountains move up mm-hmm. by small increments, the soil of the earth is recycled through earthworms. Coral reefs grow by tiny increments over tens of thousands of years. Um, no one can see these things happening. One has to be able to imagine them happening. And Darwin had that wonderful imagination. Yeah. He had the capacity to sit still or stand still in a field or in a wood for an hour at a time and just watch and listen. There are few of us who have that today, and we're worse for it. Right. You know, in our cultural debates in the United States, 
Um, and I, I really don't have any need to talk about that too much. I, first of all, I want to say, do we, can we keep going here? Because this is just wonderful. Can we keep going for 15 minutes? Or mm, mm, Okay, mm. all right. And, sure, um, I'm lose track time. <laughs> yeah, I know, I just looked at that. Um, all right. You're giving me a different way to think about um, one of the reactions that people have in this country that has been publicized as these things have been publicized with some recent, you know, court cases in the last year, evolution, intelligent design. Okay. And I I think this is a very small movement, but, but there are some conservative Christian people who, and and maybe this was a reaction people had in Darwin's time to who really take offense at the idea that we human beings came from monkeys, that, 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 that idea would diminish what it means to be human the way you're describing Darwin's approach is, in, in fact, exactly the opposite. Um, Darwin's approach is very much in harmony with pe- people who are against speciesism, as it's called today, uh, um, those who would give rights to animals. Darwin was uh, – was, um, um, I'll think of the word in just a second. Yeah. <laughs> Darwin abhorred cruelty to animals. Like his father, he couldn't stand the sight of blood. That's ironic, isn't uh-huh. it? Because yeah, he was intended for yes. medicine. Yes. See why he fell out. Um, um, he remonstrated with people who um, he uh, saw abusing animals. He would take them up on it on the spot. He was, he was a, a JP, a justice of peace, a magistrate for his mm. county. Mm. And there are cases of, of, of him sentencing people to punishment because of the way they treated their pigs or their horses. Um, Darwin even respected plants, and there are descriptions of, of him going into his greenhouse and talking to them and stroking their leaves as if, as if they were alive. Mm-hmm. Darwin wasn't a tree hugger. I don't mean that at all. He respected life. He wasn't uh, averse to killing animals and dissecting them. He, he wasn't a vegetarian. But his his vision of us all being netted together, the human races is one family, and all of life is part of, of the great tree of life, whose creator through the laws of nature is God, is, is Darwin's way of looking at the world. We think that apes are... And like people did in Darwin's day, they think of apes as being immoral. Look at the bonobos, you know. Mm-hmm. How do they solve mm-hmm. their conflicts? They have sex. Victorians were quite aware of that. That's why they dressed up chimpanzees in the zoo as, as little boys, little girls, mm. because they might mm. do things to each other in front of the people. Mm. They were considered to be examples of natural, sinful man. Right, right. They, natural, sinful man was animal-like, and we still hear things like that today. Teach children in schools that they're, you know, just grown-up chimpanzees, and by mm. God, that's how they'll behave. Mm. Um, Darwin saw it rather differently. Um, I wonder if you could talk about um, the the religious reaction to and debate about Darwin's ideas in his time. And how that is similar to or different from the debate that flares up again and again in ours. Did it have the same dynamics? Did it have the same theological positions? No, no, it's not the same. History hasn't been repeating itself. Um, Darwin's um, 
colleague, Alfred Wallace, who um, is believed to have come up with the same theory of natural selection um, 20 years after Darwin did. And in fact, it was Wallace's work that got Darwin to publish The Origin of Species quickly to establish his priority. This man, Wallace, who was considerably younger, um, went to the United States uh, for a lecture tour in 1886. And he started off in New York, and he went to Boston and Washington, and then he made his way across by train um, through Kansas and Iowa and uh, Nebraska, and he got to California. And during his trip, um, he lectured on Darwinism in parts of America now where if you were to lecture on Darwinism, you might well be greeted like Jerry Springer, the opera is greeted. But there was no problem. Uh, he mm-hmm. was welcomed, and he got his his uh, lantern slides out using an old, uh, you know, a, a uh, oil lantern and uh, mm. pre- projected them up onto a sheet and explained Darwinism. That's what he called it, Darwinism. That was the name of his lecture series. And then he mm-hmm. published his famous book a few years later, based on his lectures in the states. Of course, Darwin never went to the states. He would he would rather have died than lectured anywhere. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, it shows that between 1886-87, when Wallace was trumpeting Darwin's cause in America, and 1926-27, 40 years later, a, a remarkable change took place uh, in the way that ordinary Americans were prepared to look at evolution. Was that the year of the Scopes trial? The uh, Scopes trial was 1925, okay. um, but there there was there was continued agitation even mm-hmm. for a while after William Jennings Bryan's death. And how do you explain that? What changed? Firstly, a lot of people got educated, uh, and not just about evolution. Most people didn't go to university. A lot of people got educated by their ministers, who themselves had had higher education and had come to believe that evangelical civilization was slipping away from the churches. Okay. Uh, this has to do with mass immigration from Europe, particularly the darker-skinned and Catholic parts of Europe in the 1880s and 1890s. It has something to do with the growth of cities, labor unrest. Most important, I think, the, the change from the 1880s to the 1920s um, hinges on the, the First World War. And it was William Jennings Bryan, the great populist politician and fundamentalist who went to Dayton, Tennessee, who brought to the attention, in the manner of a political crusade, uh, of Americans generally, that German generals had quoted Darwin and Nietzsche uh, to justify the savage campaigns of that war and the the mass death. As a form of natural selection and forced... (laughs) Of course, yes, and as a racial struggle. And and Mm -hmm. Brian, who was a pacifist and who was Secretary of State, you know, Condoleezza Rice's predecessor... and he left, resigned his post because he didn't want entry into the First World War. Uh, he's quite unlike a lot of people who are glad to be called fundamentalists today. But he felt that Darwinism, and Darwin in particular himself, could be held accountable for this, hmm. for sanctioning this kind of behavior. We still hear that today. Hmm. It's interesting. What I also hear when you describe that time, early 20th century, is not the details are different, but we also live in a time of tremendous change. Um, you know, immigration is an issue for us, but it's not immigration anymore. It's globalization. It's it's transnationalism. It's a world that is changing 
um, it's easy to be fearful and I think to kind of batten down the hatches. Yes, it is. And what Darwin will mean for the 21st century has yet to be decided. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ironic, isn't it, that so many people who are happy to wear the label creationist nowadays are concerned far more about the events at the beginning of history rather than the events which are likely to bring history to an end. I would like to see more creationists concerned about global warming Mm. than whether or not species were created by intelligent design or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, The issue of intelligent design does uh, relate to our concerns about molecular biology and the very small nanotechnology, we hear about that, little machines that we are able to make in laboratories and what will happen if they're released into the wild. We've had this problem with uh, recombinant uh, DNA research. And um, intelligent design um, advocates have seized on uh, this nanotechnology uh, to show that there are very, very, very small machines in nature which show God's wisdom and beneficence. And um, they're holding this up at a time of turmoil to prove that there's a designer and uh, a God who's in control of this whole historical process. It's very much like um, when Darwin was a young man, people were holding up the machines, um, you know, in in the the structure of our bodies, the joints and the pulleys and the levers and so forth as evidence that God was a mechanic and had designed those machines. Mm. That was a time of social turmoil as well, and people were flocking into factories and uh, manning machines. Mm -hmm. Um, But... You know, the the question isn't being addressed by creationists and those who call themselves uh, believers in intelligent design. The the question that Darwin, I think, would ask today as to whether it's just a case of sick transit gloria mundi with a vengeance, as if this is all going to end with a vengeance. And so passes the glory of the world with a vengeance, as if we are bringing this all to end by ourselves. Darwin never saw that. He saw a natural ending, you know, in the heat death of the universe. The sun will go out someday. Mm -hmm. We are now confronting the possibility that the tree of life will be extinguished by our own efforts or our own neglect. And you feel that 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 is really the challenge for... I would like to see a tenth of the amount of energy being Mm -hmm. put into intelligent design to addressing the question of global warming and the end of the earth rather than the beginning. You know, I, I um, at the, in the beginning of our conversation, you noted that you started out in your life as a in a in fundamentalist um, or evangelical Christian circles with a, a negative view of Darwin, being raised with a negative view of Darwin. And I, I think you've already begun to tell me the answer to this question, but I, I would like to hear about how you react. Now you are American, but you're now living in Britain. But how you react to, um, pers- you know, on a personal level to. Um, the clashes more recently that have arisen in our culture that, again, take Darwin's name and take Darwin as a symbol. And are you still, can I ask you this, are you, are you Christian now? Are you evangelical? Cause well, I, that's I the kind of question I don't answer on the okay. radio. All right. All right. <laughs> Milton Rosenberg asked me that once with yeah. WGN, and I didn't answer it because okay. you lose half your audience either way. Yeah. Um, I would say I'm, I'm religious, I'm spiritual, but, you know, the, the real answer to the question, am I a Christian, is what else could I be? Um, I've spent my life immersed in Christian cultures. I was brought up on Christian values. Uh, there are ways I can't look at the world even if I would wish to. Mm-hmm. There are ways of behaving, which I associate very much with Western Christianity. Um, 
I don't accept an intellectual definition of Christian. I accept much more of a behavioral and a communitarian definition of what a Christian is. And then it's always a question whether anyone is a Christian all the time. Right. Well, okay, let me let me ask you the question this way. Um, and I'll just, I'll just say also, you know, off mic, I mean, I was raised Southern Baptist in Oklahoma, so I, I came I from I can't that hear world. that. Oh, you can't hear that. But <laughs> no. we can edit that out, too. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, and I think we all, whoever we are, wherever we came from, as we grow older and in whatever we do, we, we still wrestle with where we came from and, and I think try to incorporate that into who we become. I mean, I'm curious, as you have done this scholarship for coming on 40 years now and just lived your life, I mean... You know, how do you th- how do you reconcile the the that attitude that you grew up with, those teachings you grew up with? Do you find new ways to bring those questions and even those fears together with what you now know about who Darwin was and about what this science brought into the world? The old questions don't preoccupy me anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've settled the issue about whether the Bible teaches science. Of course, it doesn't teach science. It may teach knowledge of nature in its own time, but it's not about science today. Um, I turned to Darwin because I thought I was going to learn something about, you know, a potential friend. This is going to be somebody like me. Uh, I could get some guidance from his life, his example. Which is to say, I mean, when you say like me, you mean struggling to bring together... Um, Someone being brought up religiously mm-hmm. and who was sort of destined for the church and changed his course of life. Mm-hmm. I did okay. too, you know. I got a scholarship. I came to, to Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I studied for a PhD. I stayed. Mm-hmm. You know, in my life, being able to come to Europe in the 1970s was made as much difference as getting that pass on HMS Beagle right. for Darwin. Right. Obviously with much more revolutionary consequences in Darwin's case. <laughs> yes. But it was a life-changing experience mm-hmm. to to sail abroad, as it were, to Europe to study Darwin. Mm-hmm. And um, that has, has changed my life in many ways. Um, I think I have to answer as a biographer. Okay. Uh, um, because I've I've taken particular interest in a number of individual lives and, and continued to work on, on several. Um, a biographer is in a position of God. Uh, a biographer sees the end and the beginning and, and yet is not in a position to control what happens, but to control the story that's told about what is happening in that life. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge responsibility to feel, you know, I always sort of hold my hand out in front of me as if, you know, it has the life within it. It has all of those artifacts and and and, and sources that, that, that go to make up a story. And I think, what a responsibility to have this handful. The mm. world will come to see this person if I'm successful in the way that I believe the world needs to see that person. Not in a definitive way, because there'll be another Darwin before long. Uh, mm-hmm. We haven't ended the discussion. Yeah. But... In in so doing, one sees oneself as a being in time, and uh, that's pretty sobering, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, you know, you said, you started out, you said I, and I think I interrupted you, you said I, I thought I would, I wanted to study Darwin, I thought I'd find someone like myself. I, I heard a but in there, and I wondered what would follow that but. Ah, yes, I thought <laughs> I would find someone like myself, but I discovered he lived in a different world. I hadn't really become his historical at that stage. A historical consciousness hadn't come over my understanding either of the Bible or of 
the Victorians, really. And mm -hmm. uh, there are chapters in the Darwin biography I wrote with Adrian Desmond, which I believe could not have been written with a tithe of the depth such as there is had I not been here to do the work, to live on the spot. Here I am um, in Cambridge, England, where I live, mm -hmm. where Darwin spent uh, three or four years of his life. And to be able to walk the streets he walked and to sit in the places and to go to his room and to see his manuscripts, um, it, it, does, it really does help to bring him back to life for me and for me to bring him back to life for other people. Mm. Other biographers have written this way too. It, there is a quest, right. but always when you reach out at that very moment, the biographer... The, the the subject vanishes like a will of the wisp. Now, this happened to me once um, when I went up to Glen Roy in Scotland. Glen Roy is a an extraordinary place. Darwin visited the week Victoria acceded to the throne in in 1838. He was feeling on top of the world. He had the summer before him. He just spotted the woman he wanted to marry, and he trudged off into the hills with his notebooks and his knapsack. And um, Glenroy has quite an enigmatic geological formation. Uh, it has a series of what look like roads, parallel, uh, well, they were former beaches when the water was at different levels in the Glen. And there are three of these sort of curves, and Darwin walked up onto the second ancient beach and perched himself and surveyed the landscape and talked about what he saw. I did the same thing. I did the same thing mm. in 1986, and I found the spot because there was a, an engraving with a tree growing out of a rock, and I sat where Darwin sat, and I communed with him. And I scratched notes to myself on the back of my map. And then suddenly, a jet aircraft passed overhead. And then a Land Rover came grinding up the glen. And he vanished. His world was not mine. I could not go back and live his life. I had to use other kinds of magic uh, to reconstruct um, it for readers. All right. This is my last question. Um, I think I'm still wanting to get you to speak to that world you came from, but let me ask it mm. this way. Um, if we can, if it, if it is possible, and I think it is, I think you and I have traced that a bit, to make a correlation between you know, fear of Darwin and 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 a world that is changing and and fear of that change and things we don't understand and can't control. You know, I also want to, I mean, I think human fear is understandable in these circumstances and predictable. Out of everything you know about Darwin and, and what you've learned, and even, you know, the, the, uh, the evolution, if you will, of, of, you know, where you came from, your uh, kind of more anti-Darwin religious upbringings and where you are now um, many years later in Cambridge. You know, how would you speak to that fear? I'm not sure how much fear there is. I don't spend enough time in North America to know about fears which self-proclaimed fundamentalists have. What is fear of Darwin? You know, like a kind of instinctive... Well, my impression is that, that people who are glad to be called fundamentalists in, in North America really are on a roll at the moment. They feel that... Uh, they are taming Darwin, and they're taming the evolutionary establishment. We are winning the battle against secularism, humanism, materialism. Um, and I, I agree with you that there can be fear underlying that mm. triumphal tendency. Uh, if there is fear underlying it, I, I, I believe it's a fear that 
if we don't fight, we're going to lose the rest of our culture that hasn't been taken from us already. There's a historical philosophy underlying this form of fearful fundamentalism, which suggests a kind of conspiracy, and it's linked with Darwin and, and Marx and Sigmund Freud. It's linked now mm-hmm. probably to Islamic fundamentalism, that we are fighting a, a, a malignant, invisible world. Mm-hmm. And malignant, invisible worlds are really in fashion at the moment, and you think about um, you know the Da Vinci Code. Um, the intelligent design, it seems to me, is is the scientific equivalent of the Da Vinci Code because there's an, a mysterious intelligence behind what appears in nature, mm. and it's very plausible that there is uh, some evil design in this intelligence, and, and that people that's believe been covered it. Covered up also. And it's being covered up. That's mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was brought up partly, you know, um, some of the intellectual influences in my life were of that conspiratorial nature uh, that really the earth is um, a sinking ship. Uh, there's nothing much we can do about it uh, except to get people into the lifeboats. Um, I don't think that's the dominant impulse today in Western um, fundamental or evangelical Christendom. is much more of a, a conquering and triumphal spirit, uh, uh, but also one which must struggle with God's enemies. Um, I'm hoping that creationists amongst um, Islamists and creationists amongst George Bush's supporters and other fundamentalists will find each other because it may be a solution to the problems of the Middle East if we can get these two sides to agree at least on God's creation. Hmm. Hmm. I say that with tongue in cheek. Yeah, but I mean, I, I also think you you do not conclude, and we spoke about this very much more at the beginning, that Darwin was an enemy of God. That's, that's not a place you've come out. Absolutely not. Uh, I didn't know for sure whether Darwin was an enemy of God when I started out. Uh, I was given to believe that he was at best a well-meaning man, at worst uh, sort of a demonic figure. Mm -hmm. Uh, It became clear to me that he was not a professional theologian or a philosopher, for sure, Mm -hmm. but he was a very shrewd guy, and he had stared more deeply into the abyss, which is his view of nature at war than perhaps any person of his day. Um, And he brings you up short, bang against the world as it really is in his vision, not the world that we would like it to be as if there hadn't been a fall into sin in the Garden of Eden. Mm. Um, There are a lot of things that we... Um, no, never mind. I'll stop there. No, that's great. What you just said is great. Um, do you want to add anything else? I... What were you going to say? I'm curious. There no, no, I can't remember that... what I was going to say. All right, all right. <laughs> I well, was, I make it up was, as I go along. All right. Well, that was terrific. All right. This is wonderful. Um, thank you so much. We are going to be working on this um, into the middle of June, but we will. I abs- don't envy you. You don't. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Well, it will be an it will be an imperfect, uh, but uh, well-meaning attempt, and we do our best. Um, you know, we did Einstein in December. That was a little tricky too. <laughs> yeah, no, this was terrific, and uh, we will let you know. I think you've been talking to Jody, and Jody will keep you up to date on when this is going to be on the air and on the web. We will send you CDs. We'll send you some CDs in the meantime, also, and uh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. We'll send you CDs of this. And uh, do you, Jody? Do you have okay? Do you are you all on email together? She'll send you an email, and you can she'll get it in writing. Yes, leave it to Jody. She's great, and I just this was delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ah. <laughs> uh, well, I hope you'll be happy with it. We'll do our best. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Yeah.